In one of tennis's most controversial weeks in a fair while, a lot has happened. Rafael Nadal has lost on clay. Novak Djokovic has continued his outburst, but still won in Rome. Simona Halep continued her dominance on clay, and the French Open has come under some extreme scrutiny due to COVID-19 precautions. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. There is plenty to get through today and also a major tournament name change over the week. So Joel and I are going to discuss that, but I will introduce him before we do any of that. Joel Frucci, how are you? Going very well indeed, Val Febo. Been another big week in tennis, a really uh, interesting tournament in Rome. And uh, geez, don't don't we have a lot of uh, news to talk about from the French Open as well, and uh, just generally as well. I mean, a bit's, a bit's happened this week. Yeah, there, there has I'm been... really, really keen to talk about it. There's been so much that's happened this week on uh, on a tennis front, and we, we've got a massive show to cover it all. We've got uh, awesome, one of the best tennis journos and broadcasters in the world, Blair Henley, joining us on the show, and also funny man, comedian, and the best impersonator of any tennis player you will ever hear, Elliot Loney. You do not want to miss either of these two chats because they are fantastic. And Elliot is, I think me and you both just lost at laughing uh, throughout that entire interview. And it was, it was one of the loosest ones we've yeah. had. So fingers crossed that you guys enjoy that as well. But look, Joel, I guess we better get stuck into the agenda because it has been a huge week. And uh, the French Open is probably the biggest news of it all with that uh, five players being uh, taken out of the men's qualifying draw of Roland Garros, Bosnian J- Damir Jumhur, uh, with his coach returning a positive test, Dennis Istomin, Ernesto Escobedo from uh, America, Petka Kristen and Bernabe Zapata also out. It, Noah Rubin came out during the week on the Behind the Racket podcast, and which we will play for you very shortly. And... Said, and said that it's not a bubble at all, I guess. And it doesn't seem like from what we've what we've read and what we've looked at and what, what's come out from this Parisian bubble, I guess, it seems so lackadaisical, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, you know what, Val? I think we might listen to uh, Noah now quickly just to hear what he has to say about it. It's a 90-second yeah. grab from uh, Behind the Racket, so just bear with us, but it is very interesting. For, for starters, you did not get a test as soon as you walked into the bubble. Okay. So you had players show up on, because I showed up on Thursday. So they showed up on Wednesday. Actually hit on site that day. Went out to dinner in Paris. Then got a test on Thursday and were in the bubble for 24 hours. So again, you're looking at it and you, you, you look at different stuff and you're like, ah, that just doesn't make that much sense to me. Um, Are there any goes... players coming from other sites that will be um, uh, going, you know, essentially since I know there were challengers, ITF events coming right. from those events who don't have to necessarily sit out for those 24 hours and get the testing and all that? Yeah, I meant to look at the men's draw because there was a guy that I was looking for. I do know in the women's draw, I believe there might be up to three players that will be coming on Monday. Do I know if okay? Do I know if there's going to be different protocol for them? Do I know if they're going to have to wait 24 hours? Do I know if they say, "Oh, maybe you just take one test and not two tests"? I don't know what any of that looks like. Again, we know all these things. I mean, we're talking about it's not a bubble. 
at all. I mean, we know how long COVID takes to, to get into a system or to test positive at times. Um, I mean, for somebody to come maybe under 48 hours before the first round match, yeah, you're, rolling the, you're rolling the dice a little bit. No, Ruben and Mike Cash in there. Uh, look, it, it's pretty damning, Joel. Um, the, the part where it's not a bubble at all. Um, it's not, is it? No, well, it doesn't sound like it. I think um, the most alarming thing for me, Val, was when Noah was talking about uh, no COVID-19 testing upon entry to the bubble. I would have thought that would be, uh, you know, a fundamental pretty much. Um, and uh, not having to sort of wait to move around without a test result, uh, that's that's worrying. And yeah. especially with the current situation in France, it's interesting because we spent a lot of time talking about the US Open and, how the US Open was looking fairly dangerous for um, the players that decided to travel there because uh, at, at a point, New York was a real epicentre of COVID-19. But as we're seeing at the moment, um, and as we know, the US Open in the end did quite well. Things were quite strict and the players and everyone on the grounds um, were kept relatively safe. There was only one positive test. But that same kind of concern that we had about the US Open um, and in the end, luckily proved to be, um, you know, really, um, I guess the concern was was valid, but in the end, we were proven wrong, which is great. But we've got that same concern for the French Open now. And I feel I feel uh, more alarmed about Roland Garros than I do about the US Open. Obviously, we've already had uh, all up the three positive cases, um, and that's a real concern. And we're seeing the resurgence of, uh, of the virus in France. I think... Uh, I think it was last week, Val, on Thursday, that um, that France at the time recorded a, a record a record high um, yeah. in cases. So, look, it's really it's really concerning. So to know that um, those two very basic fundamentals of um, of the the testing regime, what we would expect to be in place, the fact that they're not in place is uh, a real worry. Yeah, you're one hundred percent correct. And uh, the most recent uh, data that we have from France is that 11,569 cases were recorded on the 20th of September, but on the 19th, it was 13,498. And Daria Gavrilova even came out and said uh, on Twitter during the week that, you know, compared to what Melbourne's lockdown is, you know, we had 14 new cases the other day and there's complete lockdown, but there's absolutely nothing in France. And if you look at the 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 Tour de France as a, as a sort of a measuring tool, up in the mountains and the Alps, the crowd were as they usually are traditionally. And they just stand on the side of the road and they're yelling and screaming. And, you know, normally in a year that is, you know, watching that is some of the most unbelievable sporting atmospheres that you can see. But looking yeah. at it now, it's like, do you guys have no regard for what's going on? And we saw with what happened with the Adria tour with full crowds and the, the French still want crowds here as well at, at Philippe Chatrier. And they want to narrow that down to 5,000 people. How do you do that, Joel? How can you possibly see a, a, a good outcome in this situation? Because we saw with the US Open, the bubble was relatively impenetrable. Um, you know, one positive case yeah. with Benoit Pair, But then the rest of them, yeah, you know, it would cause a little bit of it, and we'll chat to Blair about this later. But, you know, it wasn't as bad as what we thought it was going to be. But here in France, it seems a lot more dire. Yeah, and the crowds thing is really worrying, Val. Because uh, and and we, we should we should uh, point out that the idea is that the, the five thousand people that will be allowed onto the grounds daily will be spread 
across courts. But it's still a bit of a concern because if you've got players, um, staff, media, and fans converging on the same area without sort of that kind of lack of due process that um, we are probably expecting, um, then I think that's where your that's where your concern is. And then, of course, what we shouldn't discount is the fact that those people will need to commute um, in one way or another. You you would expect to get to the Roland Garros grounds, which, uh, as we know, are in comparison to AO, the US Open, and Wimbledon, are probably well certainly the smallest Grand Slam, uh, I guess, centre or facility that we have. So that in itself is is a bit of a worry. Um, so all up, it's not great and. Um, it's the same in Strasbourg as well at uh, the WTA event there. There are crowds there. And even Elise Cornet is, um, has come out and, and said that, um, that she's uh, worried about it. So this is a, a quote from her from France 24. She says, here in Strasbourg, there are too many fans. The fact that there is a crowd in the stands is not necessarily bad, but these people are in the walkways with us. They ask for a lot of photos and autographs from the players, and it's hard to refuse. What I want is that things are done better at Roland Garros because there will be more fans and more players, so more risk. And I think the concerns are, are valid. Um, I mean, for me, just the, the most basic thing, other than making sure everyone that walks into those grounds, um, when it comes to players, staff, media, etc., just the fundamentals of making sure they are all tested and all negative. Um, not letting fans in, I think, is the next most important thing that we can do. Just not having any outsiders uh, come into the event. I get that they want to make it a, a big event. They've got the new roof. They want to make make their money, but you know, I'm, I'm not really sure that's worth potentially jeopardising no. potentially the entire tournament. Like, no. I mean, who knows? If we get more positive tests in the next week, this thing could be cancelled. Yeah, well, it can, and that's and this is this is the problem with this situation and. Um, they've had such a laissez-faire attitude to everything th- throughout this year. And I wrote a piece in the tennis menu in the first serve for this, that th- the French attitude has kind of been like c'est la vie all year. Looking at crowds um, and what happened with the Adri Tour, c'est la vie, we want crowds anyway. You know, with the US Open, with a fairly impenetrable bubble, c'est la vie, let's just have our own bubble and not enforce any of the regulations. It just doesn't seem right with what's going on. And even when they move the tournament dates just without telling anybody, Joel, and the arrogance of the FFT to do that, I think that just established right there that this tournament might just be a disaster. We hope it's not. We hope it comes out and provides a legacy like the US Open did, but it is is a true and utter worry that this tournament is going to cause another COVID-19 outbreak in tennis, which we don't need. We really don't need. So... Um, it's a bit of a watch this space, but continuing on with the French Open, Joel, Naomi Osaka and Bianca Andreescu have announced that they won't be participating um, at the US Open. Osaka saying, oh, sorry, at the French Open, the US Open champion Osaka, uh, she has cited an injury saying that she's not going to play. So um, it's her hamstring, the one that saw her withdraw from Cincinnati in the final there. But look, can you blame her? It's been, you know, it's it's a fairly taxing really. three-week period and, you know, then to go from the USA to, and especially when she did have an injury to play and win that US Open was a ma- massive effort. So brilliant stuff from Naomi Osaka and I think she's got herself a well-earned rest. Andreescu I was surprised with, but um, considering she didn't play the US Open, her ranking's not going to get negatively affected um, after what the ATP and WTA have introduced with sort of this 18-month rolling system. 
So I think it's going to be all okay for them. But uh, the Aussies in the French Open qualifying as well. Um, the women's draw hasn't been revealed as of yet, but uh, the men, four men played last night. Mark Polman's defeated Tobias Kamke with 6-2, 6-2, which is a massive result. Alexander Vukic as well over Carlos Alcarez was down 4-6, 3-5. Alcarez serving for the match. He wins that 4-6, 7-6, 6-3 over the 17-year-old superstar who won, I think he got through to the second round or quarters at Rio the start of the year. He is the next big thing on clay, Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, Chris O'Connell, unfortunately, defeated by Elias Ema of uh, Sweden, 7-5-6-4, and Alex Bolt defeated by Michael Moe, 6-3-6-4. But uh, another big upset, uh, Thiago Seboth-Ville out. The top seed winner of Santiago on clay after losing to Ecuadorian Emilio Gomez. And at 38 years young, Tommy Robredo, five-time Roland Garros quarterfinalist, seven-time <laughs> Grand Slam quarterfinalist in general, He's through to the second round of qualies in Paris and looking to get through to his first main draw in uh, the French capital in three years. So wonderful story there, 38 years young. And continuing with the big news, Joel, this is just, I'm not going to be able to take a breath soon, but it, Stan Vavrinka has split up from coach Magnus Norman after eight glorious years of partnership that saw them get uh, three Grand Slam titles at the 2014 Oz Open, 15 French and 16 US along with Masters 1000 crowns and so on and so forth, a career-high ranking of three. Weird timing and fairly unexpected. Those two were one of the best coach-player combinations of the decade. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, well, definitely strange timing. Uh, I mean, how many days until the French Open main draw? Only a, less than a week, really. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, fascinating timing. And that's really all, all we can say. It's going to be interesting to see where where Stan uh, goes next. I mean, to be honest, I I probably would never have really considered him to really push for this uh, Roland Garros title anyway. But nevertheless, it uh, yeah, you can't help but raise eyebrows when when a player and a coach uh, split so close to a Grand Slam. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and I'm I'm a little bit perplexed at the at the move. But yeah, they they said that they mutually agreed to to part ways, and I think that that's true. Um, you know, Stan thanked him for everything that he said or the, everything that he did on, on an Instagram post. And I think that uh, the, the relationship that those two seem to have from, from the outside looking in, it seemed pretty good. Um, so hopefully um, that does remain because those two were such a formidable pair. And what Norman did for, for Stan uh, since coming in 2012, you know, Stan had those massive epic matches against Djokovic and then really started to make his way and, and start winning slams and competing for those big titles. So hopefully we can see Stan, you know, maybe a couple more pushes at a grand slam because that, that backhand is just too good for tennis to lose. So fingers crossed we don't lose yeah. it at all. But um, another big bit of news, the major tournament that I uh, alluded to earlier, the Fed Cup has now been changed. Uh, the moniker has been changed to um, the Billie Jean King Cup. And... I would like to know your thoughts on this because I I have a I have a view. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think to be honest, without sort of sounding lackadaisical, I mean, the, the Fed Cup name, not not the not the trophy itself, but just the name, has sort of never really kind of had that much meaning for me. So I think it was easier for me to see. Uh, see that name parted with. And look, I just think it's a nice little celebration of, of Billie Jean King, uh, what she's done in tennis and what, what, what she sort of continues to do uh, in her pursuit of equality within the sport, but, but also more broadly in, in, in sport generally. I mean, she's, um, yeah, she's, she's a, a great advocate for that. Um, I think everyone um, 
everyone agrees with that. So look, I think it's a nice, I think it's a nice way of celebrating what what she has done um, for the sport. And yeah, like I said, I mean, I never, I never really had a an emotional sort of connection to the name of the Fed Cup, and I should stress the name, not the actual trophy or the concept. See, I am of a different opinion to you. And look, I love Billie Jean King and what she's done for tennis. She's been such a pioneer of this sport. And if you if you watch the documentary on the Battle of the Sexes and you watch the movie and you you watch and you read all about uh, what happened and what that meant for the sport of tennis, um, it, it was truly unbelievable. And I highly recommend watching the movie with Emma Stone and Steve Carell. It is genuinely brilliant. But um, looking at uh, looking at the the tournament, the Fed Cup is history. It is such a historical tournament, Joel. This is something that has existed. Um, let me get for exactly when the first year was um, that this tournament was played. Founded in 1963, so definitely not as long as what the Davis Cup has been. Um, and it is a little bit of a different concept to what the Davis Cup has been in terms of the Fed the Fed Group. There's not as many teams there, but I just think this is this is so much so much history of the tournament. Um, and to just change the name, I feel as though they should have done something new for Billie Jean King, um, like what they've done with the Labor Cup, maybe get like a Billie Jean King Cup as well. But look, it's, yeah, I, I don't generally like the changing of history much, but the Fed Cup, I guess, hasn't had the, and I see where it's coming from, that they haven't had the same longevity as what the Davis Cup has had. So that's, I think, why yeah. they've done it. But I do, I don't know, I... I'm so used to calling it the Fed Cup, and I just think it just takes away so much history in changing the name. But then again, Billie Jean King has done so much for tennis. But I, look, I, I don't know if they should have changed it. I think some, they should have done something new for Billie Jean King. And I think that she should definitely be honoured. I think the woman deserves a statue. Um, well, she's yeah. got a tennis centre named after her, so that does help. But um, yeah, I think they should have done something new for Billie Jean King, just um, just mainly because the fact that the Fed Cup, you know, there is a little bit of history there, but I guess then, you know, how do we move forward? So, you know, there's there's pros and cons to to both arguments. Yeah, look, I think um, you know, I don't think I don't think much is going to change, to be honest, just because the name has changed. I mean, the history of of the Billie Jean King Cup is will always be just that. Like, what what's what's happened under the Fed Cup moniker will always be. Um, will always be just that. Um, and, uh, you know, talking of... I, I actually think you raise a pretty valid point, Val, with regard to the, the Labor Cup. I think that's a that's a great call. Maybe a sort of a, a women's equivalent. Um, yeah, I know, think it needs that. Been... I think it needs to happen. I genuinely think that needs mm. to happen because yeah. um, I reckon it would be awesome to see America v. The, the rest of the world. Or, sorry, no, it's Europe v. the rest of the world. Because in this competition... The rest of the world team is going to have, or team world, is going to have a lot more of a competitive, um, competitive sort of scoreline because Team Europe has most of the top players in the men. So I, I reckon yeah. a concept like this would be fantastic. So hopefully we do see it. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Who, who do they I mean, name that, that after? That said though, that, that said though, I mean, I, I don't think they have to. I don't think they necessarily had to sort of, I guess, appropriate what the men's side is is doing. Like I think if. I think if the important people within women's tennis, and more importantly, Billie Jean King herself, think that it's and and you know, of course, Billie Jean King probably wouldn't say, "Oh yeah, I want a bigger tribute for myself." She's not going to say that. But you know, I, I think if all the important people, if if the majority of the sport thinks that renaming the the Fed Cup to Billie Jean King Cup is uh, an appropriate and fitting uh, tribute to Billie Jean King, then I'm fine with that. Yeah, fair enough. More than fair enough. I'd, I'd like. 
I'm not angry about it, but I just don't like, I, I'm a, I'm a big person on, I don't like change and it's more, yeah, it's, it's, it's more that rather than anything, but yeah, no, like I, I've got like, I've no, like Billie Jean King has been such a pioneer in this sport and um, fingers crossed we can, uh, I, I hope we can see another event kind of like the Labor Cup for the women, because I reckon it would go really well. And I think it'd be really competitive as well, before we do get to our first special guest of Blair Henley, we need to go through. So some Aussies have been playing in Strasbourg overnight. Storm Sanders, one of our great friends on the show, unfortunately falling to Ekaterina Alexandrova, 6-1-6 love. Alan Perez played some pretty good shots against Arena Sabalenka, but unfortunately fell to the Belarusian 6-4-6-3. And Ola Tomjanovic defeated by Jung Shui after winning the first set uh, 6-3. She lost the next... Oh, sorry, she... Lost the first set, uh, 6-3. Won the next one, 6-4. And lost the final set, 6-2. So, tough year for... Or tough week for the Aussies. But, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a pretty good week for some of the men in the French Open qualifying. We'll see some more Andrew Harris uh, and Max Purcell still to come there. But should we get to our first special guest, Joel? Yeah, let's do it. I cannot wait, Val. And our first special guest on today's show is one of America's finest tennis journalists. She has she was one of the lucky few to be on the ground at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center two weeks ago to well cover everything that happened in the New York bubble from Cincinnati slash New York to the US Open itself. She is a wonderful, wonderful broadcaster and journo. She joins us from Texas. Her name is Blair Henley. Blair, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. Thank you, guys. This has been a long time coming. I appreciate your patience in waiting for this moment. <laughs> no, it has been well worth the wait. Uh, we'll, we'll start with your experience at the at the US, I guess, and how, how you found it as one of the rare lucky media members to, to head over to the Billie Jean King Tennis Center and how you found it all. It was a roller coaster. That's probably how I would describe it because going in, no one really knew what to expect. I certainly didn't know what to expect from the outside coming in. Then there was the whole staff at the USTA and, you know, they had done everything that they could to sort of set us up for success, but nobody really knew how it was going to work until everybody was on site. Uh, And so there were definitely, as I arrived, I think everybody was sort of on high alert. There was a lot of tension. I think there was a lot of stress in general. Then after we sort of got those first few days down, we played the first few matches of Cincy. I think everybody sort of took a collective deep breath and said, okay, we we made it to actual tennis. Uh, The the media days leading up to that actually went really well. it It was really nice to see so many of the players. We cycled through, I think we had gosh, probably close to 50 players over the course of, of two or three days who, who cycled through the media day, which was unusual, right? Because yeah. usually we are not seeing that many players, but because of this very strange situation and the fact that there wasn't that much media there, the USTA was able to get tons and tons of players coming through, sitting down for, you know, five, 10 minutes. And so it was really a nice way to sort of catch up with these players and and not that we're best buds, but a lot of these people, you know, I, I tend to see, you know, for a a good period of time throughout the year. And so it was really kind of a nice way to sort of catch up with them. I missed hugs a lot. (laughs) I I still feel like, like at the end, 
oh, I just want to like give people hugs. Even yeah. even people that it's probably good that I couldn't because even people that I that I didn't know that well, I was just like I just miss people. I yeah. just want to hug people. Uh, but so it was it was overall. I think everyone would consider it a, a really incredible success. Uh, miraculous is a word that I've heard used, and and I I think that's probably accurate in this case. Yeah, definitely. I think it was a great success, Blair. And obviously, uh, or certainly if it was, I guess, allowed, definitely a lot of backslapping and, and hugging maybe behind the scenes for the USTA. But obviously, I think certainly as the uh, as the pandemic has progressed, we've we've got more used to seeing no fans at sporting events. But of course, you were on, on the grounds and you put out that video of yourself doing some, some court announcing with, uh, I think, Diego Schwartzman. Um, and uh, the crowd goes wild. And um, I think that sort of summed up in, in a nutshell, just this new kind of reality that we're living in. So what was it actually like being there with just no fans of Flushing Meadows? Uh, well, first, I just want to say, I feel like that was like a harbinger of things to come. Yay, Diego, with a great yeah. tournament <laughs> in Rome. Yeah. After, let me tell you, two really pretty poor performances in New York. So good for him having a great week uh, over on the clay. But yes, again, it was just weird is, is the word that I would use. It's certainly something that I got used to over time. Um, and obviously the bigger the stadium, the more echo there is. Court 17, where I shot that video is, uh, you know, it's relatively maybe about 3,500 uh, seats, I think, in that stadium. So, so not huge. There's more open air. When you get into Armstrong or Ash, I, I'm not announcing an Ash, but e either one of those stadiums, you get a good bit of echo. So you really better be focusing on exactly what you're reading because you can hear yourself, you know, hello, hello, and it's coming right back at you. So um, it was it was strange at first, but I will say, I know some people were thinking, well, why would you bother doing that in the first place? You know, there's there's nobody there to clap or to hear it. But the players hear it, number one. Mm. And you can also, a lot of the broadcasts, I know at least in Cincy, I think the broadcast was actually taking some of that walk-on um, feed. And it did lend it, it's just a sense of normalcy. I think that's what it provided for, for the players, for the people watching at home. Same thing with music. We had DJs there. Um, and, and that was obviously very strange for them as well. But... I mean, the people who are in the stadium, you know, you, you could just, I mean, like I, I spent a lot of time just dancing to myself in a corner, but it, it did, it just provides some of that atmosphere and normalcy and energy because it did, it, it was just so quiet. Uh, and so the music and I think the walk-ons and things like that helped a little bit to, if you could get the energy up off the ground just a tiny little bit, I think it did that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the atmosphere was uh, was important, as as you say. Certainly, from watching afar down here. I mean, the great thing was that prime time um, is right in the middle of the afternoon for us, so it's great. So Val and I were watching heaps and heaps of tennis. But um, what was interesting as well was uh, in the U.S. Open final. I know Val and I have, have spoken a bit about this, but there was one great little moment with the um, the Ash DJ playing under pressure during the the men's final tiebreaker. I mean, I think that was just one of those little things that really just kind of provided that bit of atmosphere and excitement that was lacking by no fans. So it was great. Well, I just want to give a quick shout out to Aaron Markham, otherwise known as uh, DJ Triz. I believe he's the DJ Triz on Twitter. He oh, is go. exceptionally good at what he does. And I will tell you, I if there is one profession of people that I never in my lifetime thought I would come to know, it's DJs. That's just, I, I'm not like the kind of person who's like rubbing elbows with like cool people in clubs. But I got <laughs> a ton of DJs 
through the tennis world because so many tournaments actually have real DJs. Um, and he has done some of the most incredible sporting events, Olympics, X Games, all those things, and is so good because it's hard like to mm -hmm. be able to pick a song as kind of a, sometimes split second, you know, depending on what's happening on the court. Like it's, it's a very different ask than say, you know, playing at a wedding. So I, yeah, it was, there was a moment I was like, wait, is that, is he under pressure? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> I think everybody had had that same reaction, but, and behind the scenes too, there was that feeling of like, eh, like did that cross the line? But I think we all agreed that both of the players were under pressure. It wasn't, yeah. it's not like it was favoring one or the other. Clearly yeah. they were both feeling it and it sort of summed it up in, in one song. It was, in my opinion, it was perfect. Yeah. And the USTA often do a fantastic job with setting the scene with music in between points. I've noticed that for years that what a lot of the other grand slams and tournaments don't actually do. So it's fantastic. But looking at the US Open as a whole, the narratives I think coming out of the tournament were brilliant. We had the mums story with Serena, with Azarenka, with Peronkova all getting through to the quarterfinals. And then on the men's side, we had a new winner. So I think the, and Osaka, of course, what a win it was in the final for her. So the the legacy that this US Open leaves, Joel and I are in the opinion that it is going to leave a really positive one. Are you of that same mold? Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, all the asterisk talk goes, yeah. in, in my mind, I just feel like it's, it's completely irrelevant. I, I, in fact, I can't remember who said it, but I think the circumstances were so unique and challenging in their own way. I, I mean, I 100% I think that there was an added level of difficulty at this particular yeah. U.S. Open. Yeah, no, I, I thought overall, I think we're going to look back on this in, in terms of the winner, just like any other slam winner and and the storylines were so interesting really on both sides yeah they sure were and look I think as we head into the European season I think the storylines are going to continue to get more wacky with with what we've seen in Rome this week with um Simona Halep just continuing her dominance on clay but then you've also got Rafa losing to a guy that we mentioned before Diego Schwartzman who he's lost who he's beaten nine times only dropping two sets so what have you made of the first week in Rome and the first kind of real week on clay I guess I think it's it's just a reminder, you know, specifically with with that Rafa scoreline. First of all, Diego played exceptionally yeah. well, but there there is a curve in terms of that match toughness. Some players have, I mean, listen, watching Naomi Osaka and Victoria Azarenka in particular come out of six and a half months with no tennis and play the way that they did was mind blowing to yeah. me because for ninety seven percent of players there is going to be some sort of match toughness curve where you're just, you're in that situation again, you're feeling adrenaline for the first time in months and months and months that has an effect. You know, I'm, I'm trying to remember who I'm not going to remember, but it was, it was during the U S open. Somebody had had cramps and they were like, it's, it's not that I'm, that I'm out of shape. Like I'm in the best shape of my life. It's just, I haven't had like that, that mm. feeling, the adrenaline running through my veins in so long. And it really does create, a, it has a physiological effect. So I, I think that is why Roland Garros is going to be very interesting because are we going to see a shocker? Like we saw at the, not, not necessarily a shocker, but somebody who comes out of the gate and it's like, they never missed a beat certainly seems that way for Simona Halep, you know, with two titles mm. under her belt already. We've only been back for what, four yeah four or five tournaments. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we could see a surprise. That's the fun of it though. Like I actually think that this makes 
tennis exciting in a way that, you know, it's always great. We love tennis. We love to see, you know, how it shakes out at the end of the day, but this adds like an extra level of intrigue in my opinion. So I, your guess is as good as mine, all of that to say. Yeah. Simona does look like the player to beat though. I think Blair I was, uh, I, I caught the, uh, the, the run final last night and she was fantastic against Caroline Pliskova. No, no winners for, for Carolina and, in that opening set, six love. I mean, admittedly, she looks a little, um, well, hampered and in the end, unfortunately, retired. But, geez, Simona just looks fantastic, doesn't she? Uh, yes. And, I mean, in, in Prague as well, Prague, yes. Yes, that was the other yep. tournament that she won yep. before. Yeah. Yep. I mean, kind of, kind of the same thing. Just looked incredibly fit. She looks kind of, you know, zen out on the court. Still, still the little bits of Simona personality that we like to see, but... Uh, yeah, I think that it, what will be interesting to me is how she deals with being the favorite. Because uh, there were certainly times where she didn't react as well to that. And I think now that she has slams under her belt, I think that that certainly helps. She She's said that anything from here on out, now that she's checked that box, it's kind of icing on the cake at this point. So I, I certainly think that helps in terms of dealing with those expectations. But yeah, going in when everybody's saying, oh, it's it's hers to lose that can have an effect on a player mentally as well. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that factors in. Yeah, and you're 100% right. Wiltering is the favourite. She, I think it happened a couple of times, especially against Ostapenko in 2017, when she re- she was up a set in a break and really should have won that. But she's won two now, including a Wimbledon title. So I think looking at Simona at the French, who is the who is the player that you see as her biggest threat? Oh man, Val, that is a tough one. Um, it is hard because it's so it's so even. It's it's brilliant. It is. I you know I wish obviously I would love to see there there are some people missing that I would mm. certainly love to see. I would love to see Ash Barty or Bianca yeah. Andrescu or Naomi Osaka. So there there are definitely some people who are not going to be there to potentially challenge her. Uh, I mean, Karolina Pliskova has proven that she can do it at the highest level and, and against Simona Halep if she's feeling 100%. Uh, I mean, listen, at this point, Victoria Azarenka for the win, like any, anything is possible. I, what, what we saw from her, that turnaround after you know not having a win, granted, nobody played for six and a half months, but she hadn't had a win under her belt for over a year and to come out and play, play like she did in Cincinnati at the U.S. Open. So, mm-hmm. again, you, you might think her game is maybe not as effective on the clay, but, I mean, she played pretty well this past week. You know, I think maybe ran out of gas against Muguruza. That's another player who I think if she's playing well and everything's clicking, I love that she's working with Conchita Martinez. I got to talk to Conchita a little bit this summer uh, for the Hall of Fame, and I her mentality and just her way she has such a way about her there's she's intense but she's also calm uh you could tell she's an incredibly hard worker and you know we've seen sort of the ups and downs of Maruda's coaching situation in years past Mm -hmm. it seems to be stable she had a great start to the year so I would think and obviously as a former champion at Roland Garros I would think that she is is a very likely threat or could be a threat or could be the champ who knows, guys? <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna be so interesting. I'm really excited for this women's draw. Uh, but looking at the at the breaches or not breaches, I guess, but the Noah Rubin came out and was fairly scathing of what's happened at the French Open, as was Damir Jumhur and the the five other players that have missed with him. 
Um, what have you made of the so-called Paris bubble at the moment? Because it doesn't seem like there is one. Uh, well, let me just say that was excellent pronunciation of Damir Jumer. We, we <laughs> have practiced this on the show before. So I, I'm very, I'm really anal with my pronunciations. I have to get them right. So I'm fairly like, I, I try and make it work when I can. That's so, well, as, as an MC, pronunciations are everything. And that, I, that is a name I don't hear pronounced correctly often. Well done. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> made my day. But, so I have not, I didn't get a chance to listen to uh, Mike and Noah's podcast. Love, love both of them, by the way, two really great people in the tennis world. Uh, and I appreciate that, that they don't pull any punches. And listen, if they, if, if, if there's something to call out, they're going to call it out. And I think that's something we've seen in the tennis world that doesn't always happen because tennis is so small and people are afraid that if they say something that upsets someone, that that could affect, you know, who knows, potential job opportunities in the future. So uh, props to them for coming out with it. Uh, like I said, I have not listened to the podcast, but I did see a brief uh, synopsis on Twitter. I just... <sighs> It just makes me a little uncomfortable, I, the, the whole thing. to I think consistency is key because that is the one thing, you know, if, if players are going to throw you under the bus, and it happened a little bit at the U.S. Open where initially they were set, they said, okay, there's this bubble within a bubble, and then the health department swooped in and said, not so fast. If you came in contact with somebody who had a positive test, you're not coming out of your hotel room. It caused sort of a, a mini international incident uh, with the Adrian Manorino at uh, Zverev yeah. match. I was on that court. Side note, and we were we didn't know what was happening, and so there, you know, we don't have players, still no players. And then I'm looking at my watch, and I'm looking at the names. And I'm like, something is going on here. And then of course we start to see the shirtless images of Zverev from his uh, U.S. Open suite, and then we all realize like, okay, there's there's a bigger bigger issue here. But that was, I think, if the U.S. Open had one issue, it was in turn, it was the consistency in the eyes of the players. And so I think coming in, you have to lay it out and say, this is, this is, these are the protocols. And if this happens, then this happens. If this happens, then this happens. And, and to hear that, that the bubble may not be as, as tight as we would have hoped, I think just complicates Every, you know, it's sort of a domino effect. Everything gets complicated by that. So best of luck to them. Like, I, I sure hope that at the end of this, you know, it's easy to be skeptical. And I, I applaud the people who try to get it done because it is, it's like a little mini economy and it affects so many people's lives, you know, players, obviously, but it, there's a trickle down from there. And so I applaud the fact that they're trying, but I just, I just really hope that, that, this is a, like a happy story at the yeah. end of it and not a cautionary tale because there are just so many things that could go wrong. Yep, it kind of se seems like a c'est sort of attitude by the French, but hopefully you're right, it does go well. Nick McCarvel summed that up as well, the tennis economy, that you know it doesn't affect the players, it affects the media, the officials, everybody that works around the game. So fingers crossed we can see that start to prosper very soon. But before we do let you go, Blair, quick French Open tip. Winner for men, winner for women. Ooh, okay. I'm going to go with Muguruza yep. on the women's side. And I am going to say, oh, I'm, oh, I wish I could, if only I could have a crystal ball to see the draw, yeah. that would yeah. be really helpful um, <laughs> on the men's side. Yeah. I'm going to go because I, you know, love, well, 
I love, well, I don't know. Can you say Dominic team's a risky pick at this point? I'm going to go no. Dominic. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm Join leaving. would be great. I'm leaning the same way, and I hope he does because it would be awesome to see someone new just take the tennis world by storm, and fingers crossed we can see that happen. So, And after what he did last week, the monkey is well and truly off the back. But Blair Henley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat tennis with you, and fingers crossed we'll chat to you again very soon. Thank you both. I really appreciate it, and enjoy uh, Roland Garros. We will. Same to you, Blair Henley. And Joel, our next guest on today's show is one of the funniest men in tennis circles. If you haven't heard his impersonations, please go and watch them. We're going to play you a snippet very shortly, but he's a comedian, voice actor, impersonator, the coach of the prestigious Nine A's. Here's a little bit of a snippet of some of his work, and uh, we apologise for language, but we couldn't just we couldn't leave it out. Hello, Dominic. It's Rafa Nadal here. I just want to wish you a very big congratulation on winning your first Grand Slam title. It was a very difficult match, but that is the spot. So congratulations, and I cannot wait to see you at Roland Garros, where I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the scissors on the clay. I'm gonna wrap it on the top. Nick Kyrgios, thanks for coming, mate. Fuck, bro, I'm so hungover. Wait, like, what am I doing here again? Just congratulating Dominic Team for winning the US Open. Did he win a Grand Slam, bro? Uh, yep, he did, yep. Fuck. Um, yeah, you know, um, Dominic Team, bro, it's Nick Kyrgios. Um, congratulations on winning a Grand Slam, bro. Like, to be honest, man, like, I, I didn't even know you won the US Open, bro, but, like, you know, like, to be completely fair, bro, like, I don't really fucking watch tennis, so, like, you know, good shit, I guess. Very, very good. His name is Elliot Loney. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint. Your work, as we just played there, is some of the funniest that we've heard. The impersonations are brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries, Val, mate. Uh, it's, it's great to be here with, with Joel and yourself. As I said, I'm a big fan of the show. Um, obviously, love what you guys are doing. And, um, yeah, love the way you host it, mate. You've got a bit of Andy Marr about you. Love, love the way you operate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have as many voice breaks, but, um, no, I'll take that. I'll take that. He's pretty... <laughs> He's pretty um, highly regarded, so I will definitely take that. But um, now, um, the impersonation stuff that, that you do, Elliot, it's um, what what got you started into that? It's um, you know, it's obviously it's one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. And you know, how how did you get started doing them all? Well, I think it's um, it's always been in my nature. I believe that something that I've been delving into more as I've gotten older is like personality and the different types of personality. And obviously I'm sure you guys are aware this, you've probably done them yourselves, those personality tests. And they obviously, when you do that, has a reflection of um, which attributes, you know, you're naturally high in and which ones you might be low in. And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of always been a bit of an extroverted kind of person, but I've always had a natural aptitude for manipulating my voice and stuff as well. So it was kind of a natural thing for me. It just kind of, I just kind of gravitated towards it naturally. And, um, you know, it, it, to be completely honest with you, like I've been doing that since I came out of the womb, to be completely honest. <laughs> I've been doing the voices of my friends, family members, famous people as far as I can as long as I can remember. How about, um, how about in tennis, Elliot? Because obviously we've seen you do a whole lot of people um, – you know, people in the media, commentators, uh, Mr. Parker, I absolutely love. I think I think that's how I actually discovered your work with uh, the prestigious effing nine A's. I, I love, I just love it. But um, obviously, you can do Rafa, um, Novak, Team, Jim Courier, 
many more. Nick Kyrgios, who you're obviously great mates with. Um, talk to us about your love of, uh, of tennis. Tennis, for me, was my first love. And I can honestly say it saved my life. Because I started playing tennis quite late. So I started playing when I was about 11 years old, which for a tennis player who's obviously trying to, I guess, make it in the sport, that's very, very old to start playing tennis. So um, when I first picked up my racket, I fell in love with the sport. And before I started playing tennis, I was a huge gimp. Like, you know, I was um, <laughs> 11 years old. All I did was play video games and I was the biggest nerd. I was so raw, like, I didn't know anything about sport. I barely, I wasn't interested in sport. And the strangest thing happened. It was like I was reborn, man. I, I picked up my first racket, had my first hit, and I did not look back. And I, I genuinely, this is a fact, I played for six years straight without missing a single day of tennis, rain, hail, shine. I was the only person on the tennis courts at school in like hailstorms to swing in my babalat, man. Just ripping boys in the hail. Like I was just a, a maniac and I became possessed and it saved my life because, you know, I probably wasn't in the best shape before I started playing tennis and then I became health conscious, fitness conscious, started exploring other sports that I didn't necessarily, I wasn't necessarily interested in before I started playing tennis. So I owe the sport my life, genuinely. No, it's um that that's an unbelievable story, and yet the word gimp is so highly underused. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> brilliant. But um, talking about um talking about tennis, and you you've got a relationship with um Tanasi Kokonakis and Nick Kyrgios. How did how did those relationships eventuate? Because we're we're trying to we've been trying to track them down. They're very hard men to to get a hold of, but um you've seemed to to have done it fairly easily. Yeah, so those guys um. Obviously, I was aware, I've always followed the sport very closely, so I was obviously aware of their, their junior tennis exploits and their, their, um, yep. their I guess, uh, rise through the tennis rankings. But I actually met the Nasi at the Australian Open in about 2014 or 2015. Um, and I think we were sort of aware of each other. He'd seen some of my videos. I'd seen him play tennis, obviously. And um, we just got talking. We got along really well. And then we just started hanging out. And um, I was like, this guy's a legend. And I think hopefully he thought the same thing. And we've just become very close. And, you know, I've been on tour with him. I've um, spent a lot of time with him. I've hit with him before. And he's just a really great guy. And, um, you know, through him and through tennis circles, obviously started meeting a lot of the other pros. And I love immersing myself into in that world because I love the sport so much. So just being a part of it. Um, seeing how they train, what they get up to, you know, it's um, it's just it's it's great for me because it's what I'm so passionate about. Have you ever had uh, some of those bigger guys, Elliot, sort of reach out to you about the impersonations and I guess have a laugh with with yourself? And do they ever sort of speak to you about whether you know they like it or I'm assuming they never say they don't like it? <laughs> yeah, man, two two crazy instances stick out. Um, it's a great question, Joel. Two crazy instances that stick out. <laughs> Andy Andy Murray commented on one of uh, oh. an Instagram posts. I was doing stand-up comedy at, at um, with Paul McNamee's Tennis Kids Foundation and uh, he commented on on the post that was shared off this small Instagram account with like 200 followers being like, this is hilarious. And I was like, no way. It was the actual Andy Murray with the blue tee. I couldn't believe it because obviously I'm a big Murray fan. And um, so he's seen it. I know he enjoys the impersonation that I do of him. And um, Roger Federer, my hero. Um <laughs> Amazing story. Uh, so I first met Roger in the Player Cafe at Oz Open, I think in 2017 or 2016. I was in the Player Cafe and I was with um, Benassi 
and it was it was a bizarre thing because it was like this rumpus room which was kind of close to the cafe and we all kind of went in there and started playing table tennis and the only people in the room was literally Federer, myself, Fanasi, his coach and Federer's kids and their nanny and then obviously Fanasi was having a conversation with Roger and I was playing it cool like you know just <laughs> pretending like I didn't really know who he was <laughs> but really he's pretty on the inside. They were having a conversation eventually Fanasi and his coach left it was literally just me and Roger and my mate playing table tennis in this room and his kids. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to get another opportunity. I'm just going to go up to him. And I waited for my moment. It was, he, was, he was by himself. His kids had gone with a nanny. It was just me and Roger in the room. I walked up to him and said, mate, like, you're the goat. Like, you're my hero, mate. Like, <laughs> like, can I please get a selfie with you? And he was so nice. He's like, yeah, sure, of course. Of course. Like, I obviously didn't know who I was. A year later, I was in Montreal. And I heard this, I was on a stair, stairwell heading down towards the main mezzanine area. And um, I was on a stairwell and I heard like the media ruckus and I thought there was a big player on his way up and Roger Federer made his way up the stairs. And I was like, oh, I better get out of his way. So I shuffled out of the way and I looked down and I saw his like pristine Nike shoes and I looked up and he was just standing there and he put his hand out and he's like, hey man, good to see you again. Very funny stuff. Oh, awesome. oh that's yeah. And then, and then, like, and then, like, walked up the stairs, and I, I, I couldn't believe it, man. Because, like, he's my hero. Like, you know, I, I grew up with posters in my wall, so like, to, to, you know, not only meet your hero, but then for him to sort of, for me to know that he's seen some of the rap and stuff or whatever I've done, that you know, like, I, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was probably the greatest moment of my life. Yeah, it would have yeah. been. I, I genuinely do not blame you, Roger. Mate, like, yeah. yeah, I'm the I'm one of Roger's biggest fans as well. So that would have, I probably would have wet my <laughs> wet my pants to yeah. be perfectly yeah, honest. I but did. yeah, do not blame <laughs> you. Do not blame you. Um, and look, Elliot, we've got a. There's a few people actually behind you that uh that have been that seem meaning that they want to come on the show and and say hi. I think um I think Rafa Nadal is uh Rafa Nadal's waiting. He's just lost in Rome on his way to Paris, and I think he's waiting just to say hi to us. Rafa, how are you going? I'm very happy to be here. It's fantastic opportunity for you to interview me. Very happy to be. And well, well, what well, I gotta say, you know, had a tough loss, but I gotta come back. I gotta win the French Open. No problem. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, that is that is absolutely brilliant, Rafa. What's um? So what, what's the secret to being so good on clay? Well, you know, just hitting lots of forehands. I have an unbelievable forehand. I have been training very hard with Carlos Moya and Uncle Tony. My a long time, very long time, and well, you know, it's very important to be superstitious, believe in the tennis gods, and have a very big forehand. That is the secret to declare success. No? Rafa, with Roland Garros coming up, do you think uh, you can beat Novak? Obviously, he's just won in Rome overnight. Can you do it? Yeah, Novak is a peasant. <laughs> it is very easy to defeat. Be a man like him because, well, he has such a big ego, he cannot see in front of it or around it. So, very difficult because, you know, for him, has a humongous ego. For me, very, very humble, very humid. So, I gotta go out there and I gotta, I gotta chop Novak. I gotta chop him. Rafa, you're a gun. Good luck with your 13th Roland Garros uh, title. And uh, look, speaking of big egos, there's a man behind you waiting to get into the break uh, point press room. And his name is Novak Djokovic. Uh, Novak, uh, how, how are you going? Well, you know, and uh, I am very happy to be here. And uh, well, it's a great opportunity for 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 you peasants to be in my presence. And uh, I am gracious uh, in in defeat and in victory. Unless you know there is a lineswoman in my general precinct. 
in which case you can't know, she might get the ball to the gullet but uh, you know i am happy to be here what do you say to all the Which people that bounce back for you know back? I'm sorry. What did you say, peasant boy? <laughs> <laughs> it was a great way for you to bounce back in Rome. Oh yes, of course, you know. And uh, to win my unprecedented is it number thirty-six uh, yep. mas ma masters title. It is uh, well, you know. Uh, I keep breaking records, so uh, <laughs> how good am I? You know. <laughs> what do you say to all the people that have given you criticism this year, Novak? I say, uh, you know, pr pride be to Serbia. We are the best. We are the greatest nation, the greatest players, and uh, I am a, I am a testament to that. You know, my tennis is unbelievable. My fans are the most uh, feral and most uh, courageous in the whole of the tennis land, and uh, you know, I am very happy to have a big victory and uh, continue winning. I can attest to that. Novak fans are—they can be quite feral, and I've I've seen that on socials this year. But Novak. Thank you very much. We've got one more waiting to get in, and he's the U.S. Open champion, Dominic Team. Dominic, uh, congratulations. Thank you for, for joining us on Breakpoint. Yeah, you know, it's fantastic for me to be here. You know, I'm very happy, and uh, yeah, you know, it's fantastic, <laughs> and I love the show. It's great, you know. And how's, how's the... <laughs> Joel's just lost it. How's the, how's the prep been uh, ahead of uh, Roland Garros? Uh, you know, it's a tournament you made the final of twice, and are you really looking to try and make it third time lucky this year? Yeah, you know, like, obviously, you know, for tennis in Austria, it's very important for me to hit my big backhand and my big forehand. You know, I've been training very hard on the clay, you know, and I can't wait to get out and play in the French Open. And, you know, it's going to be great and have a big backhand, big forehand, and... I'm going to win it because, you know, I love the play and I'm Dominic team. Dominic, thank you very much. We'll let you go prep for Roland Garros and good luck. We'll bring Elliot Loney back into the breakpoint press room. Elliot, that was, that was bloody fantastic, mate. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, that's just brilliant. I'm, um, I'm uh, trying to hold back every ounce of laughter that I can right now. Um, and tell us, uh, Elliot, you've got your own Elliot Loney podcast. Tell us where we can find that and, um, and what the show's about. Yeah, I'd started my own podcast. Oh, I don't want to be wrong and, and say the wrong date here, but quite recently, I've only done 13 episodes. Um, it was supposed to be weekly, then it became two every two weeks. And at the moment, I'm not really sure how often I'm going to release them, but they are, they are there. They're on iTunes and they're on um, Spotify and on YouTube. Um, they're visual and they're audio. Uh, and I've got a few good ones on there. I've got a great one with Kyrgios. I think yeah. it's a really good podcast, probably my favourite so far. It's because he is such an enigmatic sports star and he really opens up on it. So you get to see a different side of him. Um, you know, I've got a few comedians on there, um, athletes, done a few footballers, had Jack Miney on there as well from the D. So, you know, I've had a, I've got a bit of variety on there. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do, just trying to speak to athletes, influential people, comedians, you know, as many different kind of um, leaders in, in their chosen fields as I can, really. Yeah, brilliant. It's yeah. I listened to the Curious one. It's an absolutely fantastic chat and a fantastic podcast. So well done to you. And where can we find you on socials and find more of your great impersonations? Uh, that's just at Elliot Loney. Um, so Elliot underscore Loney on Instagram, Elliot Loney on Facebook and YouTube. 
Um, and uh, I'm on TikTok now, but I don't know how, how, how much longer. <laughs> no. because, uh, it looks like it's getting banned. I saw it was getting banned True. in the US today. an article about that. Yeah, no, so, I think it is. So, yeah, not looking good on TikTok, but while it lasts, make it fun. But um, Elliot Loney, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint. It's been an absolute pleasure and I think hands down the funniest interview that we've had on this show by a very, very long way. So, mate, you're an absolute credit to what you do and um, good luck with the rest of it and hopefully uh, more encounters with Roger. Mate, fingers crossed. It'd be great to, to hang out with him again. It was, uh, well, when I say hang out, just shake his hand again. <laughs> Never watch <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Elliot Loney, thanks yeah. very much. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Cheers. Elliot Loney there joining us, Joel. That was seriously one of the funniest interviews I think we've we've ever, or the funniest interview we've ever done, and, yeah. and one of the loosest as well. But that was um, <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic interviewing Novak and Rafa and Dominic, and yeah, that was that was brilliant. But um, it is time now, Joel, for our one of our favourite segments of the week, the Benoit of the week, and where we just name someone that. You know, has had an okay week, but he's had a little bit of a cuddle. He's been up and down or or she, whatever. Doesn't matter. I'll throw it to you. Who is it this week? I'm very excited for this announcement. Yeah, well, um, Benoit of the week this week is um, Benoit. <laughs> <laughs> it's Benoit. <laughs> it is. Finally, he gets, he gets a proper nomination. We gave him the first nomination just because... Just because it's him, and he deserved the first one, but um, no, he's actually got one for his antics in Rome, and, and I think for his month as a whole, he, he went to America, retired ill against Chorich in Cincinnati, then got COVID, then caused a kind of a stir, un, you know, unknowingly, and then uh, all of a sudden gets to gets to Rome and um, gets absolutely spanked by Yannick Sinner, and um, yeah, just uh, just some usual Benoit antics on court, but he was just oddly charming about it, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Only he could pull it off. Oh, 100%. He'd be the absolute only one. But, uh, yeah, we had to give one to Benoit eventually. And he finally did something that warranted a Benoit of the Week nomination. But, uh, Joel Frucci, thank you very much for your efforts today. It's been an absolutely fantastic show. Yeah, it's been good, Val. Um, Dare I say best ever? I think so. I reckon. I reckon it's definitely up there. Um, But, Joel, thank you very much. I've got a surprise for you just before we end the show. We're going to leave the show with it. So I'm going to let you whet your appetite for what that might be. But um, uh, thank you for your efforts. Uh, it, ha- it genuinely has been the best show. Yeah, it has been. Oh, and uh, uh, by the way, listeners, Friday, we've got something planned, don't we? We're doing a, a French Open draw show with the tennis menu. We are. Us and Mark Zafoulis are going to take you through everything like we did with the US Open, but we're going to add Mark in for that coaching point of view. So, yeah, uh, tune in, joint broadcast with the tennis menu. Head to thetennismenu.com for anything you need to know about the world of tennis. Joel and I write some pieces for them as well, so you can find our work all on there. But follow us on social media as well at Breakpoint Pod on Twitter and Breakpoint Podcast on Instagram and Facebook as well. And subscribe on Wooshka, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. We are there. But Val Febar and Joel Frucci signing off. Enjoy. We'll be back for the Roland Garros draw show, as Joel said. But before we do let you go, Primo, a uh, little ham company here in Australia, came out with a commercial uh, about microwaved bacon. And they had a lot of the actors saying unbelievable. But we think they forgot someone very special to the tennis community. Find out if you can hear. New Primo microwave bacon. It's good as pan fried. Just 30 seconds. Unbelievable. 
New Primo microwave bacon, as good as pan fried in 30 seconds.